right, so guys, this is an exciting day. We've been in a series for a while now called The Word, and we've been tracing through the idea that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And if this is your first day at church, you picked a great day. We're going we're gonna to be summing the whole thing up, and uh, you picked, it's going to be a bit of a fire hose, but uh, I'm excited to be able to tie up some loose ends together. Uh, we're going to be concluding this series next week, and I'm excited to announce that our very own Matthew Wollen will be preaching. Where are you? Where are you, Matt? There you are. Yeah, it's fun. So we, we, did, this, uh, we did this series originally up at Camp 8, uh, Anvil Island this summer, and um, Matt got to bring it home up there at camp, so I was thinking makes sense for him to preach, and he did such an amazing job sharing about the church, which is our final sermon in the series next week. But today, we're talking about crosses, and we've gotten to the point in the story where we really get to talk about Jesus. We've been talking about him the whole time, technically, but this is where he really enters the picture in the flesh. Uh, as a way of doing a recap, what I want to do is just walk us through, as quick as I can, Israel's journey over the last five weeks, and uh, just kind of catch us up on some of the important themes that we've been talking about. So you can put that slide up there for me, and this is going to be what, I'm just going to breeze through this, it's going to be a little catch-up, so sorry for the, for, the, for the fire hose if you haven't been here, but um, this is what we've been talking about. Uh, we started off talking about covenants, and this is how Israel's story starts too, in many ways, is that God makes a covenant with this guy named Abraham, saying, I'm going to restore all that's gone wrong in the whole Garden of Eden story with the whole separation of heaven and earth, the separation between God and man. Uh, I made a covenant with this guy named Abraham that somehow there's going to be a rescue plan that comes through him. Super great news for us. Then we have this point in the story where they're in slavery. This is the Egypt. This is, you know, the Prince of Egypt, if you've seen the DreamWorks movie. And uh, there's, there's this moment where Israel is suffering. And they've grown into a nation at this point, but they're suffering. And what happens is, is God remembers his covenant to these people and raises up a savior figure named Moses. And this Moses figure brings the people of God through the Red Sea, very famous story. And what, uh, what, what that moment is for the, for the whole nation is it's just like a baptism. It's being cleansed of what was. And they're almost as though they're baptized in the Red Sea. And then they enter into this difficult time in the desert. And the desert tests the trust that they have with their God. I mean, they did just walk through, you know, a sea. And so you, they have a little bit of evidence that things are going well. But nevertheless, God tries to initiate with, the, with his people a loving relationship that isn't just about saving them from hard things. It's actually saving them from hard things towards a relationship. Like, it's not just saved because it's hard, although that's part of it. It's saved to to be restored again. And we see over and over God's desperate attempts to reunite himself with his people. And so that's in the desert, and it, you know, it's a bumpy, it's a bumpy ride through that time. But eventually they make it through this desert time into the promised land. And, and the promised land, you think you get there, it's gonna be all you know warm and fuzzy. Turns out there's a lot of battles that have to be fought there. And they have to actually take the land. And it's another difficult time, but through the course of a lot of years, they wind up actually establishing a city. And it's where God eventually dwells with his people in this city called Jerusalem. And the unfortunate part, and this is kind of where we left off last week, is that the hope for God actually being able to rule and reign with his people is that you'd wind up with a bit of a Garden of Eden situation again, where God gets to be with his people and he's fully in charge and the people's hearts are actually attached to their God and they're led by, because, of the, because of their love. 
uh, for God, but it doesn't go that way. And the kings that they've, that they've asked for eventually lead them astray and they end up idolizing their nation as opposed to God. And they don't wind up with the new Garden of Eden, they wind up in Babylon. Uh, the ki- their, their kingdom gets taken over by big bad Babylon and they wind up in exile. And so we have this, as the Old Testament closes, there's this repetition almost of the Garden of Eden story where you, they wind up exiled from the garden and the people of Israel too wind up exiled from their nation, from their promised land. So what we're gonna, why I wanted to go through that is because Jesus' story, as he comes on the scene, follows the exact same structure. And we're gonna walk through that today, which I'm really excited about. So my hope for the day is that you will see how profound the Old Testament is in telling a story that Jesus fulfills super perfectly. This is exciting. So Jesus' structure, here we go. Let's start with the first one. First, we have a covenant. The Old Testament closes and uh, we don't have our savior yet. And there's these 400 years of silence. But right before that, prophets like Isaiah and Joel and Daniel, all these different people, and, and Malachi, uh, which is the verse up there, I believe. Yeah, they're prophesying like, don't worry, he's gonna come. This is Malachi 3, verse one. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. That's talking about John the Baptist. Then suddenly the Lord, then, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So there is this pregnant expectation in the people of Israel, even though they're in exile and slowly coming back to Israel, slowly, slowly, there's still this hope, like one day there's gonna be a savior, one day there's gonna be a king that actually leads us back into the promised land and restores Eden and brings heaven to earth. So that's great, that's the backdrop for Jesus arriving. What about slavery, how does that work? Next slide. Uh, It's not exactly slavery, but they are in something called Roman occupation, which is pretty close. And now they don't have their land back totally. They're not totally in charge of it. And the people who are ruling Israel are puppets of Rome, basically. And they're being taxed heavily. They know that the land really isn't theirs. And it is really uncomfortable for them because they know it's a shadow of what they once had. So slavery is probably the wrong word, but it's pretty close when you think about what Roman occupation means to them. So then we have the Christmas story. Our Savior appears, we talked about last week. And Jesus enters as the fulfillment of this covenant. And then we have all these Christmas verses that we say at Christmas all the time. But when you see the bigness of the story, these Christmas verses just kind of jump out at you. Isaiah 9 is is a big one. Uh, It says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so... We have this person born as a savior into slavery. And if you guys have read the Christmas story, uh, the, the, this, this birth of a new king is a threat to the authority figures of the day, the puppet state you know, of Israel, Herod. And he has all the firstborn sons in Bethlehem slaughtered out of risk of this coming king. It's a war, Christmas story is very much a war story in many ways. And so you have that's Jesus's backdrop is there's the slaughtering of boys and he's rescued. That's just like Moses. When the, when the blessing of Israel started to threaten the powers of the day there, the king of Egypt, he had all the little boys slaughtered too. And the savior figure was rescued. So we have this really interesting mirroring with slavery in Egypt here in the Christmas story. So we've got this new, this new Moses figure appearing in Jesus. He's just a small boy. So Jesus grows up and a lot of the gospels kick off with Jesus' baptism. And this is a really important moment. So of course, 
The Israelites get rescued from, the, Moses leads them out of slavery and they go through the Red Sea. And in the same way, Jesus has this baptism moment that inaugurates his ministry. Let's read th- Matthew 3.16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So what we have here is God's spirit dwelling inside a person, a man. Now, if you were there that day and you saw the spirit of God descending on a person, you'd immediately being like, you'd you'd go, hold on, the spirit of God can't dwell with inside us. That's what we have temples for. Like, isn't God up there on that mountain in that temple? And yet his spirit is descending inside of a person? This would be just crazy to you if this was being explained to you, that God was dwelling. No, 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 God can't dwell inside people. We're too evil. He has to be contained in these temples so that he doesn't break out against us and his holiness doesn't kill us. And we have to have these animal sacrifices to atone for our sins. Like, God's presence can't be inside people. And yet the inauguration of Jesus' ministry is he's filled with the Spirit, as this, he's this temple prototype, this new kind of human that can apparently house God's presence. It's wild. It would be wild for people to have that be explained to them in the day. And we kind of, we talk about it all the time, like, oh, God's spirit's in you. And we say that. And it's this cute idea, which I think normally when we say it, we mean, I don't know, it's this nice idea that you're filled with some kind of heavenly force and it fills you with goodness and kindness or something. But for to, when you're thinking literally in this Jewish mind, God has made his dwelling in a man, in a person, is just mind-blowing because that's not supposed to be possible. It's so normal to us. And so what must be true about someone for that to be possible? Like if you saw that, when God's presence can be inside a person, you'd be like, what is this guy? What is this guy like? Well, this, this means that he's a new Adam because Adam was able to dwell with God in proximity. This, this is the first person that's ever done that since Adam. Like, you'd be freaking out. And it, it's, it's, you'd have all kinds of, there'd be all kinds of implications for you in witnessing that. Like, well, he must trust God. He must trust God perfectly. He, there must be nothing separate because how else could God be with him? That's what would be going through your mind. So this is the beginning of his... Uh, his ministry is like, yeah, I'm, I'm like a new Adam. So just like Israel, we have a baptism moment, and then we have a desert moment. And just like Israel, desert tests trust like nothing else. And so Jesus goes into the desert, doesn't eat for 40 days, 40 nights, and then the enemy chooses to have his little Genesis 3 moment, the little fall story. The enemy attacks Jesus in the same way that he attacked Adam and Eve. In a vulnerable moment, he comes in the desert and he whispers the same kinds of lies and tempts them with, it tempts Jesus with the same kinds of things he, test, he tested Adam and Eve with. Let's read this. This is in Matthew 4. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So we have Jesus having the same kind of moment that Adam and Eve had and going, no, no, I trust God. 
And no, I only do what I, I only, I trust him, I obey my father. I don't, I don't grasp for things. I don't grasp for blessing myself. I let it come to me. It's a complete reversal of that story. And so because Jesus trusts God so perfectly, he ends up being this perfect representation of God to us. Remember how we talked about many weeks ago about the idea that we're actually idols, technically? We're, we're supposed to be representations of God's image. And to the degree that we trust him is to the degree to which we're representing who he is. And so Jesus gets attacked and gets, gets tempted with more than anything you and I have ever been tempted with, gets offered more than anything you and I have ever been offered, and goes, no, no, I don't grasp for it myself. I trust God. And then, you know, this is why... His father says, I'm very well pleased. Jesus even kind of attests to this. This next verse, John 14, I can put this up. Yeah, Jesus kind of says it. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. And so Jesus says, I don't do. I don't do things on my own authority. And it's totally contrasted with this idea that Adam and Eve saw with their own eyes and grasped. And he's like, no. I don't see with my own eyes. So we really do have a new Adam. It's pretty amazing. So next, promised land. What's the promised land for Jesus? Well, we want Eden, and uh, you'd think that Jesus was going to be like, okay, well, bring us back to the promised land. Bring us back into Eden. And so Jesus starts saying things, in like in Mark 1.15, the, uh, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So he's starting to say, hey, the kingdom of heaven is actually arriving now. The promised land is actually on its way. And here's how the, 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 the story contrasts with Israel. As Israel has to go to war against a bunch of other nations, Jesus goes to war against darkness and evil itself, like the real problem. He goes to war against the lie. He doesn't go to war against people. He goes to, to war against the rulers and principalities of darkness and evil and hell and the serpent and the light, like he's on, he's fighting that battle on behalf of us. And it's kind of like a no contest situation. He walks around being like, I am actually the king of heaven. And if we're fighting the battle of like the kingdom of heaven kind of battle, this is no contest because I'm in charge. And one of my favorite verses is in Matthew and uh, Mark one thirty four. It kind of sums up Jesus' ministry in this way. You can put that up. Yeah, he says, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, advancing the kingdom of heaven, like pushing back actual darkness, the actual powers of darkness. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. I just love that. It's a no contest kind of war. And he's advancing the kingdom of heaven. So his ministry begins to look like kind of two things. It looks like a lot of mercy. Because remember, remember, uh, we've been talking about how a kingdom of love, like the kingdom of heaven, has to be comprised of two very, very important things, or else it's not actually love. It has to be fully merciful to all the criminals and fully just for all of the victims. And so as Jesus is walking around, he's walking around advancing the kingdom, being both merciful and just at the same time. Now, the mercy ones are, are, are easier to see because he's walking around healing people. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. It's, it's a mercy-based ministry. 
then he slowly starts to say crazy things that begin to look more and more like justice is on its way too, like this one, Matthew 9. It says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man, which is what Jesus calls himself, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. And the Pharisees freak out over this. Why do you get to forgive sins? Why do you get to enact justice? Like, I get that you're being merciful to everybody. That's really nice. But wait, wait, wait. You're not just healing people. Like, they're forgiven? How? Well, Jesus begins to complete the story here. So as we continue on, we've got this, all right, so Jesus is building a ministry that's slowly advancing heaven on earth through his acts of mercy and justice. And then we need to ask, like, well, where's this all going to lead to? For Israel, it led to this new city, this new temple, this new place where God dwelled with man. So how's this going to work for Jesus? Well, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, you've got people literally shouting because he's making a stir over the last bunch of years in his ministry. And you've got people going, this guy is the new king. This guy is David's son. And they start shouting like, Hosanna. Oh, well, I'll read it. Um, it says this. Uh, well, sorry, what I wanted to say was, do you remember when we were talking about David and, he's, and David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and he's dressed like a priest, and he's a king, and he's dancing, and he's happy. And so now you also have Jesus as this priest-king figure, full of God's presence, marching towards Jerusalem. But Jesus isn't dancing. He's actually really sad, and he's overcome with grief. And so we have to, why? We'll read this in Luke 19, 37. It says this, when he came near the place where the road goes down uh, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king, or another, in, in Matthew's account, it says son of David. Blessed is the son of David who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Skipping ahead to verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And so Jesus knows that he's riding in as this conquering king, and everybody's expecting one thing, but Jesus knows they're about to miss. They're about to miss it entirely. And what he's talking about with all that calamity and not one stone being left on another stone, 70 years later, Jerusalem is completely razed to the ground. They're completely steamrolled because uh, the Jews are pretty, the reason why they're so excited that Jesus is coming is because they're like, finally, someone's gonna get rid of Rome. Finally, someone's gonna get rid of our oppression and restore our nation. Finally, someone's gonna be a military conqueror and push away the real problem that we have, which is Roman occupation. The real problem we have, which is slavery. The real problem that we have, which is not being able to be in charge anymore of ourselves. 
And Jesus is weeping, going, oh, I'm not fighting that battle. I'm fighting a different one. And you're about to miss it. And what happens is they do, and they crucify Jesus. And, you know, the, under, the Christian movement becomes this underground thing that actually takes root in places better outside of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem stays this place where they're committed to eradicating Rome. They manage to gain a little bit of power one day and uh, overthrow Rome a little bit. And then Rome comes in a couple, eight years later and just wipes them out. And that a siege on Jerusalem is one of the most horrific, horrific instances of, of, of ancient warfare. The stories that we got to hear some when we were in Israel. And uh, they missed Jesus because they thought he was going to conquer the Romans. And instead... He's coming to set us free from something far more sinister than Romans. He actually wants to make you and I holy. He wants to make you and I, our hearts clean so that we can be with God and that we can be temples too, just like he is. And we, we see this because as soon as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, where's the first place that he goes? In every account of his arrival in Jerusalem, the first place that he goes is straight to the temple. And what does he do? He sees all the money changers and all, this, and all the shady things going on in the temple. And he goes, this is not what my father's house is for. And he turns over all the tables. And uh, this is just, he goes and he cleans out the temple as an image for what he's actually trying to do. He's after people's hearts. You can put the image up there. Put this, put this image up. Uh, this is uh, an old diagram of the temple mount. Okay, And what I've circled there is uh, what's called the Antonia Fortress. And this is what Rome built next to this little playground that they let the Jews have to worship their God. And then they built this giant Roman fortress overlooking it. It's a bit of a flex. And it makes a bit of a statement. And so here's a, I, this is what I like to picture what would have happened. is on the day when he arrives into Jerusalem, and I, I guarantee you that the Roman regiment there would have been like, a king is coming to down today. Suit up, guys. Like, what's going to happen here? The people are freaking out. They think a new king is coming. There's people shouting. There's parades happening. That Roman legion is on patrol that day, I guarantee you. Okay? Then some guy rides in on a donkey with some teenagers behind him. And it's not that impressive. And he looks real sad. It looks real sad. I was like, all right, guys, boys, I guess let's go home. And they all go back to that thing, the Antonia. And they're all standing there. And they would have witnessed, from perched over top of that place, they would have witnessed that same guy making a scene in the temple court just below. Just making a scene. And I like to imagine a bunch of Roman soldiers standing up on top of there being like, look at this guy. This is the thing that the people they think is their king. And they're turning over, he's turning over tables. I bet you're just mocking and laughing from up there. I don't know. It's likely. What a scene right there where this conquering king comes in and goes straight to the heart of the matter. And the Roman legion is laughing him off. So just, just pause for a sec. Uh, what do you think in your life is the main thing from preventing heaven from invading it? What is the main thing that you think in your life is, is, is the thing that is the main barrier to heaven or at taking over? I guess it kind of depends what you think heaven is. But if heaven is financial security or something, we, uh, we would pray for, I don't know, finances, and we'd want that gone. If only I was. 
If only I was this, life would be better. Don't we pray like that all the time? Don't we think that way all the time? If only it wasn't this way, then I would do this. And I feel like what God would say, and it's kind of articulated by this little scene that I've painted for us, is that Jesus would say something like, do you think Rome is the problem here? Do you think, like, what's the Rome in your life? What's the Rome that's just like, man, if only Rome was dethroned. If only Rome would go away. And Jesus comes and goes, yeah, yeah, I'm not a problem. What's your heart like? What's your inner worship like? Are there money changers in the, in the temple courts? Are you worshiping me with a pure heart? In fact, I'm gonna use Rome. Rome is not only not the problem, I'm gonna use it. Like I'm that powerful. And, and it did. I'm pretty sure God waited for this Jesus thing to happen until Rome was in full swing because the roads were really helpful. A common language was really helpful. And they took over the whole thing in like 300 years without lifting a sword. Rome was not the problem, right? In fact, he used it. So we stop thinking about Rome. I'm going straight to the temple. I'm going straight to the temple and I'm gonna clean it out. And I think we miss him a lot. We miss him and Jesus weeps going, oh, they're gonna miss me. They're gonna miss me. It's quite gripping because we actually need him. So where are we at? It's nice, but Jesus is a little bit alone in the temple. And if the story is going to be complete, it's not just Jesus that's here. We have our little prophet, priest, king in the kingdom of heaven, kind of all on his lonesome right now in this diagram that we've been working on. And you and I are way out here in the exile territory. And it's nice that he's out there in the temple mount, flipping tables, perfectly in relationship with his father, because the next stage is we want the Garden of Eden, right? That's what we want next. We want Eden restored. But Jesus is kind of on his own in this mission at this point. And so Jesus' story does end in a garden. But it's a different one. And his garden is called Gethsemane. It's not Eden. It's called Gethsemane. And if you know about this story, this is where Jesus goes when he's in anguish over what it's going to take for him not to be alone in the kingdom of heaven anymore. And he's in anguish over what this is going to take. And he says something so interesting as he's praying, which we, you and I will have to chew on forever. And I'm so glad he was this honest with his father and his prayers. Luke 22, 42 says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. In other words, take this cup of suffering from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Yeah. Jesus doesn't want to die. I don't blame him. Do any of us? He doesn't want to. If there's, any, if there's another way, that'd be great. But. If there's another way, that'd be amazing. But. But I'm the new Adam. But I'm the new Moses. But I'm the new David. And I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do what those guys did. I don't do what those guys did. And this crucible moment, this is like, this is the, like Gethsemane is, is when heaven is leaning forward on the edge of its seat, going, this is it. Is he, is he the new X, Y, and Z? And he says, not my will, but yours be done. So here's what's so interesting about the enemy's offer to Jesus back in the wilderness test in the desert for him. You know what the enemy's offer is to him? He's like, uh, he takes him up on high and shows him all the kingdoms of the world, right? And all their splendor is what it says. That's Rome, basically. And maybe others, but for sure Rome at the time. 
the enemy is saying to Jesus, you can have Rome and you don't have to die. You can have Rome and you don't have to die. What? What a deal. You, you can conquer Rome in, under your power and I'll give it to you. And you don't have to die. It's incredible. What a deal. And so it's fascinating that Jesus' obedience takes him to the fullest extent of love, which costs him his whole life. And we've talked from the very beginning. The, the, we called the series The Word because he's, Jesus is the Word made flesh. And we talked about how the Word is the truest, most beautiful. It's what the Greeks used for the most deepest purpose behind everything. And it's love, like God is love. And so because Jesus is the words made flesh, he is love, and so he can't, he won't, can't, won't, take things by his own power. He does it for us, and it's always for others, and it's devoid of self-interest. And so he won't take Rome. He'll die instead for love's sake because he's the word made flesh. And so we wind up with a, a cross here. And that's where his trust takes him. His trust takes him to the cross. And some of the imagery that we've been talking about is we have our scapegoat. Remember the scapegoat from a few weeks back? Where you tie a red ribbon around the head of the goat and you hire Gentiles, Romans, to lead it out of the camp to die. You have the blood being spilt that's representative of the two halves of the covenant that was made with Abraham when God walked through it himself, saying, I'll pay for the covenant. You have in the ram in the thicket from Genesis 22 when Abraham trusts God to the point of actually sacrificing his son and God says, no, I pay. No, I'll pay. And a ram's in the thicket. You have a Passover lamb from Exodus 12 when God says, you kill a lamb and you paint the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death passes over you because it's my blood that will keep you safe. So we have the he. We have the he, we have the royal priest we've been waiting for that crushes the head of the serpent and is struck by it at the same time. So how? How does Jesus atone for all of our sins through this act? If you don't mind, just humor me for a second. This is something that didn't, it's hard to wrap your head around. And there's an image in my mind that I wanna share with you because it's been helpful for me over this last little while. And here's how I've been making sense of it. So hell, evil, has a case on you and has a case on me. If this was a courtroom drama and the devil comes and makes an accusation of you, he's fully correct. Yeah, he's done this, this, this. He's mistrusted God in this, this, this way. She's done this, this, this. And it's, uh, you're like, yeah, actually, that's true. Guilty is charged. So if you were to pay for your own sin, you would, it would be your blood that has to be spilt. And you could pay for your own. Not helpful for God's plan because then you'd be dead and uh, you will have squared up the debt. Great. You're also not around anymore. But, you know, justice would in a sense be served. So here's what happens when Jesus dies. Here's what happens when Jesus dies. Hell has no case. Hell has no case. On you, he has a case. And I kind of let the image that I've been enjoying, picturing, is that all the things we've done wrong in our life are kind of like little handles on us. And death goes, 
yeah, okay, I'll die with you too, but I'm just gonna latch on to you with all these little handles that you've created in your life through your decisions, and we're gonna go down together, and that's fine by me. My goal is to bring you down here, all your handles, and (laughs) the evil just goes and sticks to you through all the great cases that it has. And then you take Jesus, on this other hand, there's not one time where he mistrusted God. There's not one instance where there was a hook that the enemy could come along and go, I'm gonna make you pay for your own thing. And all that Jesus would have ever had to do was give a little handle here and his death would have just been square. His death would have just been for his own. But because you have this perfect trusting human, the enemy comes along and he's just slippery. There's nothing to grab onto and reinforcements are called and reinforcements are called and the enemy exhausts its entire power onto one man. And he absorbs every single ounce of it because he's completely slippery. And evil exhausts its power on one guy. And so now, for you and I, mistrust used to exclude us, right? Mistrust used to have us be on the outside. Mistrust used to have a case. But evil's exhausted its power elsewhere. Mistrust no longer. The case that it was on you and me, there's no case anymore. That's already been paid for. Justice has already been served. And so if you want it, you can have his righteousness. If you want it, you can have his payment. So this is the, this is the fun part about what that means, is that Jesus' death on a cross actually does this really fun thing. So in Jesus' life, he's got this trust arrow, but he doesn't have a mistrust arrow. Remember, he never did it? Slippery fish, right? He never did it. He never mistrusted. But here's what it does for us. is because he's extended it to us, it reverses this arrow for you and I. And we have a way back from exile. We have a way back into the garden through his way. And he's not alone anymore. So this is what we'll end with. Is I want to end with what these lines actually look like and how we actually follow Jesus in this way for you and I. What does it look like to actually live like that. We call it discipleship, which is essentially a journey back from exile towards love and trust. That's what discipleship is. When we talk about making disciples, multiplying disciples, it's, uh, it's people who are marching back from exile somehow. They're learning how to trust again because they went, whoa, I have access? Whoa, I have access? Oh, well, how does this work? <laughs> Let's walk back to Eden. Apparently, I can go back. And that's what discipleship is. So one of my favorite verses, Romans 12.1, we're going to use to unpack this. You can put it up there. This is so great. Therefore, this is Paul speaking, Romans. Apostle Paul, I'm trying to explain all this mess to everybody. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay? Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Okay, so if you're reading this, the first thing that jumps out to you probably, if you're like me, you're going, wait, wait, wait. I thought Jesus was a sacrifice. But we're the, I thought he paid that. Why do I have to be a sacrifice? Logical question, right? What's, what does sacrifice have to do with it now? I thought he was that. And the answer is, it's kind of in this uh, in this term, in view of God's mercy. And so this is what I like, I like to picture. Those of you that were at camp know what's coming. 
drew some googly eyes here. Drew some googly eyes, emoji. Looking that way. <laughs> Sorry, I'll get out of the way for you guys. You got some googly eyes. And uh, in view of this, what God's done, in view, we go, okay, I'm going to do that. Okay, I'm going to follow Jesus in the same way that he followed God. Oh, he sacrificed everything for that. And so Paul is saying that we get to be a living sacrifice. And as we trust God in the same way that Jesus trusted God, it actually costs us our whole lives And now it's this pleasing and proper worship that actually counts for something because it's not recompense for debt. It's free, chosen, reciprocated love. And you're alive, by the way, a living sacrifice bonus. But it feels the same way that Jesus's path would have felt. And it looks like death. Sacrifice is death. But in what sense? So I drew another little diagram. Uh, I drew it in in blue. It's supposed to be purple, and I'm so annoyed, but I'm going to get over it. This is supposed to be purple. This arrow, that arrow we've been pointing at a bunch, actually looks like that. That's what Jesus' journey looked like, his journey of trust. And at the bottom of it, there's a cross. And this is what his trust is. This is, is, you know, Gethsemane's right about here. (laughs) And the cross is here, and... And then he's resurrected to new life. But this is Jesus' journey. And so Romans 12 is saying, in view of Jesus, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. So why does this, this is Jesus' journey. Probably the best chunk of scripture, my favorite anyway in the Bible is Philippians 2, and I want to read it for you in light of all that we've been learning. Put Philippians 2 up there. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But it's not the end of the story. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so our journey is the same in view of God's mercy as we just follow him. We just follow him. And Jesus says this in Luke 9. You can put that up there. He said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever wants Rome without dying will die. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very self? Guys, a living sacrifice, and we've been saying this a bunch, but it's the death of all that was gonna die anyways. Jesus invites us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices and what's crucified along with him is the lies and it's the things that needed to die and it's the things that were gonna bring us down anyway. Isaiah 53, 11, last verse. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. So the resurrection, where this Jesus story concludes, is an assurance that there is life after death. There is life after death in the living it out day-to-day sense and in the internal sense. And Jesus proves it with his, with his resurrection. And so today, the enemy might be saying to you, I'll give you Rome and you don't have to die. He might be saying to you, you can have everything in this world and you don't have to die. It's gonna expire, but you can have it all while it's here. You can have it all while it's here. Just don't believe that if you died for love's sake, that there'd be resurrection on the other side. No, no, no. I'll give it to you all now, and you can come with me for how long we can have this party last. And the good news comes along, and Jesus comes along in full mercy and in full justice and says, that's a lie. It's not all going to expire. I've made a covenant to bring heaven back. I've made a covenant to have eternal life actually be restored to my people. And so, yeah, it's going to cost everything temporal. It's going to cost everything temporal for my people, but they will follow me and they will experience the resurrection life. And they will follow Jesus. They'll follow my son. So I think our response, and this is what I'm praying that my response will be, is something like, I will offer myself as a living and a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, and you can resurrect me. You can resurrect me. And a people, and a people that trusts God that much is called the church. And we're gonna talk about what happens next week, about what it looks like when people actually bank on that, when people actually are discipled and make disciples and go, come find out how much life there is to be had on the other side of the death of selfishness. Come, on, come find out how much life there is after the death of pride. Come see how much heaven is advanced when I surrender to the way that my king actually wants to lead this world. He's leading it. It's already coming. The kingdom of heaven is already advancing. The purple dotted line is making its way into the green one, and that's really good news. And that's the story I want to be a part of, and it's the story that you and I get to be a part of if we so choose. And I think when Jesus said, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and that's good news, I think it is. And so today, we're gonna take communion together. And uh, this is, I think, a great way. (laughs) It's Jesus' day. And we get to remember what this gives us access to. We get to remember what that blood means and what 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 it means for us in eternity. So I'll invite the people that are handing out communion. You can do that now. I'll invite the worship team back up. We're gonna sing a song together and then we'll take communion all as one. And I'd like to pray for us. Lord, I thank you that there is life after death. Father, I thank you for the resurrection life you offer us. Father, um, I just admit how, how attractive Rome is uh, I, I admit how attractive it is to, to, be, to be given the offer of not needing to die and not having to surrender. 
Lord, you've conquered death. This is what we're talking about here today, is you've conquered death. We're not talking just about living a nice life. You haven't just offered us a nice life. You've, you've offered us love and relationship for eternity. And so, Father, I pray that right now, the full spectrum of what the gospel means would, would, would punch us in the face. Lord, we've walked through a majority of scripture now, witnessing your immense intensity for restoration to bring us back to our original design, to know you. So Father, let, let the gravity and epicness of the story and what you've accomplished not fall on deaf ears today. Thank you for my friends and just for the humility to even listen, for the humility to even think and ponder. It's evidence of your spirit working and it's just amazing. So Father, I pray that you would bring that act of faith and humility in our hearts right now to fruition and you'd rescue us again and we'd lay something else at the altar and we'd follow you again through one of these parabolas into new life. Lord, thank you for resurrecting us. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.